As promised, the Veterans Affairs Department is looking to make do with fewer facilities. Officials just completed a deep study of the VA's real estate portfolio. They propose closing dozens of medical centers, but replacing about half of them with new ones. For the other half, VA wants to shift care to more specialized outpatient clinics or to non-VA providers. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me now with the details here. And this might be more of a pinata than a plan because everybody's going to start whacking at it even before the ink is dry here, Jory. But what do they propose doing with some of these hospitals and why? Is it a matter of population counts and demographics? It is definitely a reflection of the current veteran population, where they are, who they are. This is truly a massive undertaking, and there's obviously a lot of charged emotions about all of this. But first of all, this is not something the VA is doing voluntarily. This is something that they have to do under the 2018 Mission Act, and these are recommendations it's making to a not-yet-formed Asset and Infrastructure Review, or Air Commission, As far as what that means for the portfolio of VA hospitals, it means closing about three dozen VA medical centers, but replacing about half of them with new construction. That also means that it's building up some VA hospitals and locations where there previously was no VA hospital. And then there's a third bucket here where there are VA hospitals that are being demolished, but there's no VA hospital one-to-one equivalent that's being built in its place. In those circumstances, that care is going to be absorbed by nearby outpatient facilities. Sure. They don't like the word BRAC, which because that has realignment commission in the military. But that's essentially sounds like what they're doing is aligning their resources with where the veterans are. And as you point out, who they are and how they are. Yeah, yeah. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough, he spoke last week to really get ahead of this, just recognizing that this is such a charged issue here. He pushes back against the BRAC categorization. He says that this is investing in VA, not a retreat from services. And he says that while the numbers on paper look like they are reducing the net number of VA hospitals, and and that is in fact true, this is a net reduction of three VA medical centers overall, he says that if this plan goes through as envisioned, this will actually bring VA care closer to more veterans. I also want to say now to anyone who's concerned about the process, that VA is here to stay. This is an investment in VA, not a retreat. It's a doubling down, a strengthening of our ability to deliver world-class health care. And it's true, there will be changes in markets, but we are staying in every market. Sounds like he's trying to head off the union objections. Outpatient care is a big factor in this, Jory. Tell us more about that. There's a bucket of VA medical centers that will not be one-to-one replaced here. And in those circumstances, outpatient clinics will absorb that care. And that is really a real evolution of how the VA sees medical care in the future. And not just the future, the present here. A lot of VA medical facilities are more than 50 years old. They have tons of beds for inpatient care. And the way the agency sees medicine right now, that is very antiquated. There's a lot of procedures that used to require a lot of in-hospital rehabilitation that don't now. McDonough, when he was speaking last week, compared this to hip surgery, that in the 90s, this is something that you'd be laid up in hospital for for weeks. And now that recovery is done largely at home. And so that is a reflection of where care is now and what VA medical centers actually need to do to provide for the veteran population. 
And so give us the number there, what to what, in terms of numbers of centers. Well, this would be a reduction of more than 100 here. There's a couple of specialties of outpatient care here. The one big one to follow here is multi-specialty community-based outpatient clinics. That's a mouthful. They go by MS Box, and they provide really a little bit of everything. They provide primary care. They provide mental health services and specialty care for a lot of circumstances, those actually see a 56% increase overall. In real numbers, that'd be an increase from 248 to 388. Got it. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. What did McDonough, what did the VA officials say about the veteran population itself in the U.S. that's driving some of these changes? Yeah, there's a couple of trends here that are really interesting to follow. One is that the veteran population is shrinking in size. It's growing in diversity. Uh, Women veterans are the fastest growing population among veterans. And so the VA is also looking to tailor its services to cater to women veterans. Also, the veteran population is getting older. So they want to expand their long-term care options for those older veterans And then just a recognition that the veteran population lives in different places than they used to previously. About half of the veteran population lives in just 10 states, according to this VA report. And generally, the veteran population is on the move here. They live more in the south and southwest, but it's shrinking in the northeast. And that reflects these VA medical center closures. We're seeing centers in New York, in Philadelphia close that will not be replaced with a similar facility, but will be that circumstance where outpatient facilities are absorbing those services. All right. And any reactions so far? This thing only came out Monday. Yeah, the reactions are a little all over the place here. We heard from House VA Committee Ranking Member Mike Boast. He says that VA facilities are in disrepair, they're crumbling, and he says that the status quo is not an option here, that he's really going to look over these recommendations to the Air Commission and make sure that they are the best that they can be. On the other hand, we heard from John Tester, who is the top Democrat on the Senate VA committee, and he says that these recommendations are a non-starter. Meanwhile, we did hear from the American Federation of Government Employees. They got well ahead of these recommendations before they were publicly available. And AFGE President Everett Kelly says that these plans would dismantle large segments of the VA healthcare system. So just a sampling of the reactions that we've seen. And just a point I wanted to clarify, Jory, these multi-specialty community-based outpatient clinics, the MS Box, these are VA-operated. These are not private providers, but these are VA facilities. They're just not full medical centers of 20 stories. They are, and they, they provide a lot of care, just not hospital care. You know, this is the kind of thing where you would get seen by a doctor, get the kind of personal care that you need, but are not these gigantic campuses of multi, you know, floors, beds, and that sort of thing. All right. And what happens next? This Air Commission, well, they just got their budget a day or two ago, so they haven't been able to really operate. Now they've got to hire staff and spend a year looking at it. What's what's going to happen next? This is really just the beginning here. This kicks off a, a whole process that will take at least a year. And then from there, it will be probably multiple years for any of these facilities to materialize, either the the demolition or the construction. The recommendations do go to the Air Commission, but the Air Commission isn't really fully stood up yet. President Joe Biden just announced his intention to nominate eight members to that commission. The Senate has to confirm those members. And once they are confirmed, they will take a look at these recommendations. They will issue their own thoughts. They'll actually draft their own recommendations, and those recommendations will go to Congress and the president. And that phase of things will 
conclude when President Biden gives his thumbs up or thumbs down at the beginning of 2023. That's a good reference because this thing looks like it's developing into a battle worthy of Caligula here. So we've got a lot to cover and look at ahead in the year ahead. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out Jory's coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, 
you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.